And this one deep right field. That's out of here. Way, way gone. And the Mets take the lead. Brandon Nimmo with two out of the top of the ninth. Cranks a two-run homer and the Mets lead four to three. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, June the 18th. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Also at our friends, The Grueling Truth, which are part of the iHeartRadio network. Uh, Happy post-Father's Day to everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. Pretty solid weekend for everybody to celebrate kind of a pseudo-holiday weekend. Yes, I'm coming to you on a Monday. If you had a chance, I was on WLIE, guest co-hosting with Rich Catino yesterday. Had a lot to talk about about the Mets, Yankees old-timers day. Got a little bit into some of these Knicks rumors with them potentially putting Kristaps Porzingis on uh, the trading block. So if you had a chance, you could always get those guest host appearances over at the Talking Mets feed, so uh, you can check that out if you want. And uh, I come to you with, I guess, a Monday morning short, kind of a Talking Mets short, because with Father's Day yesterday, Mets game, with them being in Arizona a little bit later, I figured let's do the WLAE, let me come back after the game and and give you guys some content to uh, chew on. So no guests today, just me kind of setting things up. For the uh, the rest of the week, the rest of the road trip, and then into the the homestand and the Dodgers coming in next weekend. Uh, you know, look, as you heard in the open with that clip, uh, this is probably going to go down regardless of what the season becomes. Is one of the better wins of the season, one of the more exciting wins of the season. I mean, similar to the game in Philadelphia a couple of months ago when Conforto hit the ninth inning home run. You hope that something like this could propel this team. We all know that in baseball, sometimes these things, even though they have a way, I always felt late inning wins, even though you can't prove it statistically, have a way of kind of changing the dynamic and moving teams in a in a different direction, good or bad. You can't really prove that statistically. They're only as good as the next day's pitcher. And if they go to Colorado and the pitching comes back to earth, which is very possible, we'll all be forgetting about this pretty quickly. Of course, if you go to Colorado and you can't hit like the Mets haven't been able to hit, I don't know where you're going to be able to hit. But uh, maybe the humidor has something to do with that. But here we are on June 18th. We're post-Father's Day. I mean, there's no more. uh, It's early, really, when it comes to this team, especially when you're eight games under 500. You have about six or seven teams ahead of you. Geez, you have the whole National League ahead of you other than the Reds and the Marlins. The, The thing about it is... It's so the second wild card with the Nats only being six games over 500 is so achievable because nobody's run away with it. Now, what I'll say is this when you're eight games under, you're a good month, a good month away from being just 500. 
So the Mets, if they have any chance of of making this uh, a, a season to really invest in, they got to start now. Realistically, they're probably not in any race. But but here's the thing. I I still think you have to stay the course with this roster this year. I wouldn't invest in it right now. I wouldn't rip it apart. I certainly would begin to consider trading Astrubal Cabrera and Jerry's Familia because I think those are the guys that ultimately will fetch them some some value on the uh, on the open market. So I I can't sit back and 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 say that there's no opportunity to improve the team. But I wouldn't rip it apart. I mean, actually, the wild card race could come down to reminding us a lot about. 1973, and I and I said this last night on WLAE. I hate how Mets fans always have to channel a season in their history to kind of use a, a current day reference point. And here I am doing it, but you look at it. There's all these teams bunched up. The Mets are under 500, similar to how they were in 1973, and they're probably underachieving, similar to how they were in 1973. And I don't know if you could say the pitching is as good. You don't have Seaver and. Kuzman and Matlock, but I'll tell you, DeGrom and when Syndergaard comes back and Mats is starting to show me something, and even Wheeler, who's who's had his struggles and still, when you look at the overall stats, isn't great, but he's shown so much improvement. Vargas gives you solid five innings. Uh, you know, it's not a bad rotation, and it's really carried them. Even though they've lost, it's, they've carried them for the better part of a month. So right now, and that's why I wouldn't rip this team apart. I think you still have a lot of good pitching, controllable pitching. Uh, you have some really good bullpen arms and Gazelman, and I don't know what they're planning on doing with Lugo, but if he's in there, uh, give credit to Island and Callaway. Uh, I still believe in a foundation of pitching, and I know everybody's going to go back and say, look, the Mets built this team, or maybe they kind of got boxed into building this team because Alderson inherited these arms when he took over. They... they um, they built this team on a foundation of pitching, and, and look where it's gotten them. It's gotten them nowhere. I, I don't buy that because, and I heard what Paul LaDuca said. Paul LaDuca was tweeting out about how you can't get free agents to come to City Field because they're afraid that their numbers will be depressed. So you, you build through the draft and free agents and you sign pitchers. I, I guess in theory you can make that argument. But but City Field, to me, it, it's not, I mean, if you're a good hitter, you're going to hit there. You're going to hit there no matter what. And uh, I, I don't really buy into that. So, uh, to me, you still stay the course. And if you were going to rebuild, I don't think it's with Sandy Alderson. I mean, Sandy Alderson's 70 years old. He's already had a crack at rebuilding this team. And you could say they got to the World Series. He did. What he really did is he took some of the assets left behind from Omar Minaya, managed and navigated the financial troubles so that the franchise could stabilize, that pitching came together in 2015, and everything went their way, and they made it to the World Series. Sometimes you be- it's better to be lucky than good. So if they are going to rebuild, I think it's got to start with, hey, Sandy, they're not going to fire him, but he retires. I'm assuming John Rico takes over. Who knows? Maybe the Wilpons say, hey, let's let's really evaluate this front office. I don't think they would do that. That's not Fred's style to really overhaul. And, and it's a fair conversation where you sit back and say, is this front office maybe antiquated in some ways? Because Sandy, nobody who was a general manager when he was the general manager of the Oakland Athletics are still really, really running teams. 
at this point in time. So you're talking about a, somewhat of a dinosaur in a league with 30-something, you know, NBA, Ivy League type of guys. So that's where I would say I don't think that's going to harm you. Looking at the roster again, I still don't think a complete teardown, especially with the pitching. Now, as you get closer to the deadline, if somebody wants Todd Frazier, you certainly listen. I think uh, I think the pitchers, the big guys, you certainly are going to, if they call you up, listen to what they have to offer. But unless you get bowled over and you get some real serious, not low minor league maybes, like, oh, you know, this guy has tools. Like, I don't want to hear about tools. I want to see guys who achieved at some level on our major league ready for a guy like DeGrom or Syndergaard or guys like that. I mean, even Conforto, I, you know, I know he's coming off the shoulder surgery. But to me, that's a guy that you'd be selling low on, but I wouldn't call him untouchable. I know he's somewhat of a cornerstone, but I wouldn't call him untouchable. Really, what yesterday showed you is that Brandon Nimmo, though, is starting to become a bit of the heart and soul of this team. You even saw Noah Syndergaard tweeted out, basically saying, hey, all of us need a little Brandon Nimmo in us. And you could tell that they really were happy for Nimmo. I mean, even Dominic Smith, who made a very stupid error, a very lazy error, you know, was tweeting out about, about Nimmo. And it reminds me a bit when Reyes was in his early prime and was an impact player, how on that 2006, 2007, 2008 team, and I know some of those years all ended poorly, but Reyes really was the engine of those teams. Every game where they played well and they really needed to win, it was always Reyes leading off with a single, maybe getting a stolen base and scoring right away. It was almost like a NFL team scoring on the first possession or on the kickoff or something like that. He always gave the Mets a jolt. And I think Nimmo, to a certain degree, is. I mean, we're all talking about Gliber Torres. If you look at Nimmo's slash line, you look at his OPS+. plus. He's been better than Gliber Torres. I understand he doesn't play a premium position in the field. He plays corner outfield, but you know, here it is. They've they've moved him into the third spot, an opportunity to drive in runs. I'm shocked. I, I was ready to give up on this guy a couple of years ago when it was rumored that he was going to be part of the first Jay Bruce trade back when the Mets acquired him in 2016. I wasn't all that upset. He was the first draft pick in the Sandy Alderson regime. I was like, oh, my God, what a disaster. You took this kid, and he's developed. And sometimes it takes players longer, and I know I've been critical of, of holding on to prospects and overvaluing them. And maybe Brandon Nimmo's one of those guys that just needed time to, to get it. And he certainly has. I mean, he's got a great attitude. He's humble. And uh, I think Rich Catino pointed this out on yesterday's WLIE program, the first thing he does in the post game when people are talking about his game-winning uh, hit is, well, if Reyes doesn't do his part, there is no game-winning hit. And I know Reyes got lucky because Avila basically botched it with the bunt. But that's something to look for. Brandon Nemo really becoming the glue of this team. And I don't think I'm overrating that. I mean, his attitude, his, the kind of game he has where he can get on base, he can hit for power, he actually could steal the base. He's not a speedster. He could steal the base. He's he's not hurting them defensively. I, I always said I didn't feel he was a center fielder. But even if you remember back in 2016 when he first came up, uh, I think it was against the Cubs, he provided, he had that, that energy where he stood out on the field. And players like that always have a way of standing out because of their positive energy. 
and, and the positive impact they have on the club. And again, I know you can't measure that statistically. And at the end of the day, you could really boil a lot of this down to basics in this game. But to me, that's you're really seeing that with Brandon Nimmo, and, and that was one of the better wins the Mets have had in, in, in a long time, and Nimmo was part of it. Now, you move to some of the negative. How can this team, if you're going to stay the course, how can they make it interesting? You're not betting on it. You're not betting or hate or waiting or even anticipating that there's going to be any of those quote-unquote meaningful games in September because that's all you can really hope for now. The Mets have put themselves in such a hole with that horrible homestand. But what's up with Cespedes? Now, Matt Cerrone of Mets blog made a very interesting point, I thought, where Cespedes, which has been described as chronic leg injuries, is very similar to other players who've had to go under maybe some hip surgeries with the impingements, not replacement. I'm not talking about replacement, but similar to A-Rod. I think Chase Utley had that. Uh, when you use your torso and you and you you hit with such velocity like these guys do, eventually some of the, the parts of the body break down. And you wonder, are there, are those lower leg issues, like Saron said, maybe part of a bigger problem that goes to the hips? And will that need surgery or require surgery? Nobody really knows. Where is Cespedes? What's going on? You get the feeling, mainly because of Sandy Alderson during a press conference a couple of weeks ago, talking about playing through pain. You get the feeling the team isn't sure. Now, they may be hiding something. I mean, he's shut down his baseball activities. He's down in Port St. Lucie. The naysayer is going to say, ah, he just is not into it. He sees the team losing. He wants to be close to his ranch in, in Florida. And, and he's a dog. That's what they're going to say. I, I don't know about that. I, I would hope that's not the case. Now, John Harper wrote an interesting column in the Daily News over the weekend. And I know I've been critical of Harper on Twitter because I feel he's, he's waving the Yankees' pom-poms. But what was interesting was that, and I think everybody knew the Astros was serious about signing Cespedes when he was a free agent after 2016. What wasn't readily published, which is very interesting. I'll get to that in a minute was how bad his relationship with Terry Collins was and how they feared that Terry Collins might be one of the main reasons that Cespedes would leave. Now, Cespedes, according to Harper, wanted to play for a contender. He wanted to have a spring training facility close to his home in Florida. He wanted, obviously, the money, um, but there was enough concern that the Astros were going to take Cespedes away, so they put the no-trade clause in. That's how the Mets kind of became a difference maker. So what it really showed me is that, you know, you have a guy that hasn't really enjoyed himself here outside of maybe that short spurt because he didn't like the manager. Uh, I don't know what he feels about how they've handled him medically. There's been some issues medically. And, and now the guy is kind of taking things off. And you, you, you got to wonder, I mean, what's the future here with Cespedes? You're stuck with him. And if you really think that Conforto, and I, I still wonder how good Conforto is going to become, and the only reason he gets a pass from the fan base is because he's homegrown. If he wasn't homegrown, they'd be tar and feathering him just like Bruce. You have the corner guys in Nemo and Conforto. Uh, you have a need in center field. If you're really going to rebuild the roster, the guy to rebuild the roster with is Cespedes. Now, I don't know if you could trade him. He's got two years left on the deal. He's got a no-trade clause. I don't know if any team would touch him, but teams did see 
what he can do. And you wonder if you talk to Cespedes, say, hey, do you want to go to a contender? If that's so important to him and he can get healthy, it might come down to where teams will say, hey, I'll take the money, but I'm not going to give you much in terms of prospects. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's the rebuild. Instead of throwing the starting pitchers away and doing this hysterical rebuild when you have them controllable for a couple more years, maybe it's Cespedes. So that's something very interesting. I don't I'm just throwing it out there. It's the beginning of a thought process. And and it really will dial back to Nimmo and his emergence and whether you believe Conforto, because now there'll be corner guys. And do you rebuild the offense through the offseason by starting to look at maybe a defensive minded minded speed center fielder? And you take some of that money allocated for Cespedes and do something else with it. Because we don't know where he's at. Now, part of this week. And part of that Cespedes column, and I and I know you guys get all crazy when I bring up Collins, but I think it's important because again we have the Terry Collins revisionist history. The, the 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 Collins thing in the Cespedes in the Cespedes article by Harper gets buried, and there was no doubt. I mean, Howie Rose intimated about it is that Cespedes had trouble with Collins. I think Collins had trouble with the Latino players in general. And I don't think it was racism that came into play. I think it was more, you know, I don't know if he really knew how to handle what is Cespedes kind of playing by his own rules. And maybe because there's that every team, like people, want to hang out with each other. Latino players, they're comfortable. They speak the same language. They tend to hang out in their group. Maybe that, in Collins' way, was a problem in terms of, of dividing the team. I don't know. It doesn't really matter at this point, but... The video, the viral video came out of Collins with some colorful language fighting with the umpires. And it was a fascinating video that has been removed by MLB. Basically, the mic down in the field, it was when, if you didn't see it, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably did, um, you um, you heard what Collins had to say after Noah Syndergaard was ejected for throwing behind uh, Chase Utley back in 2016. And, and the fans like, oh, look at the fire of Terry and... Look at, you know, I miss him and everything. And look, I mean, if anybody goes back and takes a time machine and remembers that night, I mean, everybody. I did a podcast here the next day. It was one of the more aggravating nights because this was on the heels of the the, the NLDS the year before. The Mets felt that it wasn't handled well during the playoffs. They got screwed. They, they lost what could have been a critical game. And, you know, you're less than 12 months into this and you're playing the Dodgers, you're playing Utley, and you see, you kind of feel you're getting screwed again. Of course the manager's going to go ballistic. Mickey Calloway would go ballistic. Geez, Jeff Torborg, who, who sometimes people have channeled his name during these struggles this year, would have gone crazy. So I'm not going to give Collins any kind of credit on that. You still see when Collins was the manager, how he was protected by the media, the Harper column and how they buried Collins' issues with Cespedes, they knew that was a problem back in 2016. Why wasn't that reported? Why wasn't that reported? And it almost seems like there was a protection of Collins by the media. And that Harper column really proves it. And it set the team back because Harper even said in that column that Terry, the last couple of years, whatever he did do well, and I and and maybe he communicated well at some point. I still think he never pushed the team. But it's exactly what I've been telling you. After they won that World Series and, they, and that offseason, I remember Terry getting a lot of accolades, you know, MLB Network special. He retired. He took a bow. He retired. But he didn't win anything. But he still wanted to manage. So, you know, that then brings me to my point here is that 
And I love Mike Vaccaro, but now he's comparing Callaway to Bob McAdoo. And there's nothing that Mickey Callaway could do with this club that would have made a difference through the first, you know, 40%, nearly 50% of the season. They've had bad luck. They've had injuries. Uh, they've been historically bad offensively. Everything seems to go wrong. You know, the other night in Atlanta, they got bases loaded. They hit a rocket down the line. Camargo makes a play. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that statistically you keep saying to yourself, this team's going to break out of it because the career norms, when you have players 30 to 40% below the career norms, uh, what do you do at that point? If you switched Aaron Boone and Mickey Calloway, I don't think you'd have a much different Yankees or Mets right now through this point in time. So it boggles my mind that everybody here is ready to throw this guy. Young manager, he's very bright, I think. Uh, I, I think when he communicates, and I've always said, and, and I've said it a lot, so you probably are starting to say, oh, I don't want to hear it again. But the manager has to manage the clubhouse. The manager has to manage the bullpen and the pitching staff. And he has to manage the media. And these days, like you got to add the front office. And I certainly think Mickey Calloway is doing the front office part better than his predecessor. But I think when he communicates with the media, he, he communicates almost like he's talking in the dugout in baseball lingo, and they're not used to that. Uh, you know, he uses terms like dirt balls, and, and, he, and he gets very granular. And I heard him the other night say, well, we were a couple ground balls away from scoring five runs off the pitcher. And although that's correct on Friday, sometimes you have to think about your audience. The, the, the media wants something. And sometimes you have to speak to them, and it's almost play-acting a little bit. So you give them enough to make them become your ally. And I don't know if Callaway's mastered that because you clearly see a lot of the media not like him, and, and, and they say they scratch his head with him. But I understand. I, I listen to the same quotes. I'm like, well, I don't know if I would put it that way, but he's not wrong. Um, you know, they want to hear him scream and yell and throw players under the bus, and that's not who you hired. And, yeah, I think there's times where managers and coaches today's day and age could do more of that, and I, I think they're hesitant because of the the kind of players you have now. You have a different generation of players. But uh, picking on Callaway, getting ready to put him into the failed experiment category, uh, continuing to bring up Terry Collins and act like he was a different manager than what we saw for eight years is just flat out wrong. And the media really has been poking the bear because you even hear Joel Sherman kind of put it in a column this weekend over at the New York Post saying, well, the Mets get distracted because they're so obsessed with being compared to the Yankees. Well, you guys are writing columns basically asking the Mets to hand over their best starter, maybe their best pitcher that we've seen here, and since the 80s, the kind of season he's having, you know, Pedro Martinez had a great year in 2005, but the Grom is at a level that very few pitchers in Mets history have hit. Can he sustain it? We'll see. And you want him to be gifted to the Yankees for a toolsy single-A outfielder and prospects that, you know, you say are better because they're Yankees prospects, but they're filler. And you don't want to, you don't want the organization to look at you and think that you have an agenda against them. You know, so, you know, at the end of the day, look, things are not great. They're going into Colorado. Like I said, you, if they can't hit in Colorado, they're never going to hit anywhere. Uh, the theme here is this, and you're not going to get me to change my mind. I'm not saying the Mets are in anything, and I'm not 
expecting them to go on a hot streak thanks to this dramatic home run by Nemo. I don't know if this team, because it hasn't proven it outside of maybe two or three weeks in April, has a good month of high-quality 600-plus level baseball in it because they haven't done it, and that's what they need to really even just get back to 500, which would put them at least in a conversation for something. Right now, everything that we're saying here is a pipe dream. I think you stay the course. I think you start to wonder what veterans you could jettison. I would not rip apart the core of the team, but, and we'll explore this more, this John Harper column is something to think about. If Cespedes is this difficult and the organization is this concerned about him at times, and if contending is so important to him, and I know about the spring training thing, and you know, I don't know if the Astros really need him, do you start the rebuild or the reboot? Not the rebuild, because I think you could take this pitching and you can compete next year with the right moves on offense. And do you use Cespedes to change maybe the culture a little bit and diversify the offense? Because to me, what you're basically saying is that Cespedes controls a lot of the mood of this team. And we knew when they signed him that he's an energy player and he could be wildly good or he could be horribly bad. And, you know, I didn't talk about this on WLA, and I regret it a little bit because Rich is a big supporter of Cespedes and feels the media picks on him, specifically about his race. And, and, and you know, that's his opinion, and I don't know if it's more about him playing for the Mets and him being flamboyant, and I think with the canary armbands and his hat backwards and him sitting on his back during drills. If he was a wide receiver in the NFL, I don't think anybody would care. In baseball, we tend to get upset with anybody who colors outside of the lines. Uh, you know, it is what it is. That's the way it is. So, anyway, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Short edition, maybe like a State of the Union. Like I told you, I'm going to do more of these in midweek or when there's news. Uh, I, what I think I'm going to try to do is try to get a call-in show later this week with the, the call-in line and maybe focus on that, see if we can get that going and, uh, and take it from there and see if we can uh, – you know, I, I don't know if it'll be this week or the week after. I have to see. I'm trying to work on a couple of things. But, by the way, just, just keep going to MetsamorizedOnline.com if you want to check out my latest content. Of course, you could just you know follow me on Twitter at Mike Silver Media and get it directly. But want to thank everybody. Of course, I want to thank uh, the folks, like I said, at MetsamorizedOnline.com. You could check me out on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, on Twitter at Mike Silver Media. And you can get us over at the Grueling Truth, the iHeartRadio Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Hope you enjoyed this little Monday edition of uh, the Talking Heads podcast. And once again, happy Father's Day. And I'll talk to everybody later this week. Take care. Meet the Mets. Head for the podcast.